Good morning. Good morning. The reading today comes from the book of Joel, chapter 3. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back... I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion, and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel, So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. This is the reading. Amen. Amen. And thank you for uh, reading such a long passage today. Um, I have the, the pleasure of trying to explain such a long passage. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Gabriel. Normally I lead worship, um, but today I get to preach. I get to bring God's word to us. And I think he has something to say. Yeah. 
Um, Jeremy, thanks for leading. I, it's so fun to see uh, our college dudes just stepping up and leading. But let me start like this. In my lifetime, I have been summoned for jury duty three times. I'm 27 years old. I've been summoned for jury duty three times. And not once have I served as a juror. Right, So the first time I showed up, there was about 25 of us in a small secretive room underneath the courthouse, and a man in a suit gets up and thanks us for doing our civil service and then plays a video, which explains the whole process. To be honest, I didn't actually watch the video, which uh, would come to my dismay later. Uh, The whole place smelled like cheap government coffee because there was cheap government coffee. And um, the whole thing just felt like very American. It made me very proud to be an American. Anyway, then the man in the suit took us upstairs to the courtroom. And in the courtroom, I was hoping that we would get assigned like a really cool case, like a bank robbery or something like that. But the case that we got assigned was even better. It was a car accident. Right? It was a car accident between an old woman uh, and some other driver, and we were going to be assigned jury duty for this case. And then my mind was blown. One by one, the attorneys started interviewing us, right? And in my mind, I was starting to push the brake, thinking, hold on a second. I thought I was the one who was going to be interviewing the criminals. Why? Why are you putting me on trial, right? Why, what right do you have to judge me? I'm the one that's supposed to be interviewing the criminals. You can't judge me. Have you ever said anything like that? Have you ever thought anything like that? You can't judge me. Or more commonly put, uh, only God can judge me. This is probably one of the world's most famous tattoos. Only God can judge me, right? Um, And maybe you you end up thinking this or saying this um, in your relationships, right? Like, oh, hey, Jeremy, I heard that you're on a diet. Do Do you really think you should be eating all those donuts? Only God can judge me. Right? Or, or if you're driving with your spouse or your significant other, in my case, uh, my wife is kind of like the speed demon. Sorry, honey. Uh, you know, and I'm like, honey, uh, the speed limit is 45 and you're going 60, right? And then maybe sinfully she looks over and she's like, Shh, only God can judge me, right? <laughs> or maybe it's your birthday and you wear some clothes that maybe don't suit you as well and your friend calls you out on it. Only God can judge me, right? Like that's our response to things. And I think secretly what we mean when we say only God can judge me is that we we don't think that we should be judged, right? We feel like we're outside the scope of judgment besides anyone except for God. And that's that's not untrue, but I, I do think it is only half true. God is the final judge. Everyone else is just trying to figure it out. But in that moment, when you get to the pearly gates and God is judging you and you say, only God can, wait a second, it it probably won't actually have the same effect as it had on our spouses and friends whilst we were on earth, right? What will we say then? Today, I want us to see that if God's judgment is real, it changes everything, right? And maybe you're in the room today and the idea of a God or the idea of uh, a day of judgment is a bit like fantasy. It's a bit like Harry Potter. It's a bit of a fairy tale. You don't believe it. Um, Today, my challenge to you is wouldn't it be good to know what exactly the Bible has to say about God's judgment? Like, what does it mean for the world to be judged? To actually know what a judgment day would mean for the world. Today, I I want us to see that if God's judgment is real, this changes everything. And I think Joel 3 has a picture for us to see. And so I've I've broken it up like this. The setting of God's judgment, the summons of God's judgment, and the aftermath of God's judgment. The why, the how, and the why. The setting, the summons, and the aftermath of God's judgment. 
And so here in the beginning of Joel, we see the setting of God's judgment in verses 1 through 8. But to unpack this a bit, I wanted, um, I wanted to tell a story of a man. And um, it's a bit of a polarizing story, but I wanted to tell it anyway. It's, uh, it goes like this. In, in 1948, the government of South Africa instituted what is called an apartheid, or the Afrikaans word for apartheidness, right? Um, essentially, this was a system that was set up to, to help the development of South, on paper, it was set up as uh, a system to help equal development of the different cultures in South Africa. But what it, what it actually instituted was the racial tendencies that were brought about by the British rule, right? So instead of equal development, it was essentially separate development based on uh, your skin color. It was institutionalized racism. The social values that were sort of there, the racist tendencies, had become instituted law. And so what the apartheid did is it separated the peoples of South Africa into four groups. You had the whites, the blacks, the Indians or South Asians, and then the coloreds who were the people who were of mixed race. And this race would get printed on an ID card, which if you were non-white at the time, you had to carry uh, at all times. Beyond that, there were 147 other rules. You didn't get a choice of where you lived if you were not white. You couldn't intermarry with someone not of your race. Everything down to the public spaces was physically separated in South Africa. And this went on for years. Ten years later, in 1959, the law passed, uh, or the government passed a law that essentially removed all black spots within white areas of South Africa, essentially moving all the blacks, coloreds, and Indians outside of the city where you couldn't even own property if you wanted to, right? You could only rent it. As to own property, you had to be white. You sure couldn't vote. And what little resources were provided in your schooling, you didn't get a choice where you went to school, but what little resources were provided in your schooling in the poor communities were leading to one career, which was to work in the gold mines and in the diamond mines of South Africa. Think about that for the second. The year is 1959, 14 years after World War II. And South Africa is not only upholding these racial, uh, racist, injustice laws, but adding to them. 1959, 14 years after World War II. But all while the apartheid was rising, so was a man in his dream for freedom. A man who stood hard against the injustices being done to his people in South Africa. And his name was Nelson Mandela. Mandela had a vision to see all the people of South Africa in peace and unity. In 1952, amidst the apartheid, he opened South Africa's first black law form. That same year, he led waves of protest, peaceful protest, aimed at securing citizenship for all of South Africa. They would burn their ID books and neglect to follow the laws of separation. He was ferociously committed to the freedom of his people. For the freedom of all people in South Africa through peaceful protest. But that all changed one day in one protest in Sharpsville, where the South African police would gun down 69 people. And the autopsy would show that most of them had been shot in the back as they were walking away or running away. That was the year that Mandela's philosophy of justice changed. And I quote, it would be wrong and unrealistic for African leaders to continue preaching peace and nonviolence at a time when the government met our peaceful demands with force. It was only when all else failed, when all channels of peaceful protest had been barred to us, that the decision was made to embark on violent forms of political struggle. 
That year, Nelson Mandela would travel illegally to Algeria to undergo guerrilla training and learn to make bombs. His plan was to blow up government facilities late at night when no one was around and destabilize the South African government. Although when he returned, he was tried for leaving the country illegally and sentenced to five years in prison. And whilst he was in prison, the government raided his hideout outside of Johannesburg and found evidence of his attempts to sabotage. Mandela stood trial for his crimes and admitted to the charges of sabotage, all while denouncing the apartheid. But instead of giving his defense, he gave a speech that would be marking the the rest of history, a speech that would mark the rest of history. And it goes like this. He said, during my lifetime, I have dedicated my life to the struggle of the African people. I have fought against white domination and I have fought against black domination. I have cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons will live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an ideal for which I hope to live and to see realized. But my Lord, if needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. Mandela and seven other party members narrowly escaped the gallows that day and were sentenced to life in prison. South Africa could not have a set of martyrs on their hands. But even in prison, he could not escape the apartheid. He was the lowest of the low of inmates. He received less privileges than the other and uh, inhumane punishments for small offenses. One report um, said that the, that the guards at the South African prison uh, would bury the inmates up to their necks and then urinate on them as a form of punishment. But enduring all these hardships, Mandela still pressed on. This man could not be broken. He uh, attained his bachelor's degree. He actually, when he started the law firm, did not have a law degree. So he got his bachelor's degree while he was in prison, smuggled out his autobiography, and served as a mentor to his fellow prisoners. This man could not be broken. In 1988, Mandela was released on house arrest. The year after, the newly elected president, F.W. de Klerk announced or called for a non-racist South Africa. In 1990, Nelson Mandela was released from his prison. From 1948 to 1990, Mandela fought this fight. From 1948 to 1990, institutionalized racism was the way that South Africa was run. 42 years. I was born in 1990. But it all come to an end, Mandela's dreams were finally realized. And it was in 1994 that the first election was held in which all peoples of South Africa could vote. And that was the same year that Nelson Mandela was elected the first black president of South Africa and would go down in history as the father of a nation. Now, why do I tell this story of Nelson Mandela? Because in it, I, th- I think there's a beautiful picture. And I mean, I'll admit, it is a polarizing story, right? Like, that's true and true. But in this story, you can't, you can't help but see that there's a beautiful picture of a man who loved his people so much, who wanted justice for his people so much that he was willing to go to great lengths to secure it for them. And today, in Joel chapter 3, I see this same picture of a God and his people who would go to great lengths to secure justice for his people who are being treated unjustly. Right? So to this point in Joel, God has restored his people physically. He's provided for them. He's uh, restored his people spiritually by sending his spirit out on them, on all flesh. And now we're going to see that God wants to restore the fortunes of his people. He wants to bring justice to them. God and his people are one. Whatever is done to his people is done to God. 
right? Verse 2 makes this very clear. Joel 3, 2. I will enter into, ju- into judgment with them on behalf of my people, my heritage. God is literally calling his people his lineage. You see, the surrounding nations of Tyre, Sidon, and Philistia have been more than bad. They have been wicked to God's people. They've enslaved them. Verse 3, it says this. And they have cast lots for my people. They have traded a boy for a prostitute and a girl for a drink of wine. God's people are literally being gambled over like poker chips. Boys are being traded for a moment of satisfaction with a prostitute. Girls are being sold for one drink of wine, not even a vineyard, one drink of wine. Human life doesn't have a value to the nations. And how do they respond? They attempt to pay God back. That's how they attempt to fix this. They attempt to pay God back for what they've done. That would be like the, the South African police uh, when they slaughtered the 96 people attempting to pay the families back by sending the remnants of their beloved. Right? It, it doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. You can't pay back life that has been taken God's anger is white hot for the injustice done to his people, and he takes it deeply personally. This isn't arbitrary. This isn't ethereal. God doesn't just judge willy-nilly. He takes this deeply personally because the injustice has been done to him. You can't repay me, God says in verse 4. In fact, your payment, I will return swiftly on your head. God is promising what he promised in Joel 2.27 that will come to pass. He says this in 2.27, my people shall never again be put to shame. God is is making that promise true for his people. Do you feel the weight of God's defense? For us today who would claim to be a part of the family of God, do you feel the weight of God's defense? This means that we no longer have to defend our own legacy or family name. No, no, no. We, lo- we actually lost those names when we became Christians. No longer are we Hossos or Ruttons or Cleavers or Browns or Webbs or Smiths. We're Christ. God will defend us because we are his people, his heritage. And if you look around the world, you don't, you don't have to look far to see the injustices in the world. You can blot them out of social media. You can put your head in the sand. But eventually, you will have to come up to the real world for real air, and you will be blindsided by the things that are happening. What hope could there be for a world full of hunger and racism and slavery? For the Christian, we believe that hope is God and that he will right every wrong. Like a painter, he will blot out all the pieces that do not fit into his masterpiece. And no longer do we have to defend our name or reputation. No longer do we have to labor towards self-preservation. No longer is our survival dependent on our fittest. No, no, no. God will defend us because we are his people. And for the justice-minded in the room, right, this, this should be a call to rest, to realize that God cares for the same things that we're fighting for. Shane, do you, do you believe that God wants to provide a refuge to the refugee? Kylie, do you believe that God sees the things you see behind closed doors at that children's hospital? Do you believe he sees those injustices and wants to fix them? Nick and Meredith, do you believe that God wants to provide a home to the homeless much more than you do? God will defend us because we are his people. He will bring justice to an unjust world. So, if God loves his people and wants justice for them, how does this come about? 
Mandela had his protests and later his bombs. What is God going to do? We've seen the setting of the Lord's judgment. Now let us look at the summons of God's judgment from verses 9 to 16. Here we see Joel sending a rally cry, calling all the nations to make a defense against God. Mockingly, he calls the nations to prepare for war. In verse 9, he says this, Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let the mighty men of war draw near. Let them come up. God is saying, come and fight me. You can't pay me back. You will have to fight me if you want a chance of survival. Mockingly, he says this, right? Now, after this moment, not a dot of injustice will remain on the earth. But beyond that, he says this in verse 10, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. God is calling everyone to fight him. He's calling everyone, not just the strong, but also the weak, not just the warrior, but also the farmer. Everyone will have to make a defense against God for the injustice done to his people. Can you imagine this for a second? Everyone across time and space, from all of humanity, from all of human history, gathered into the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of decision, where the Lord will make his final judgment. The leaders of the world wars, the Christians during the Crusades, the the leadership of South Africa in the 1950s, the artist, the beatneck, the engineer, the grandmother, the grandfather, you and me and the barista down the street, all in the valley of Jehoshaphat, the Lord on his holy hill about to make a decision on all of humanity. Individually, one by one, he will make his judgment on all of humanity. Can you see it? This is the moment Joel is prophesying about. He's prophesying about the moment right before the doorway of mercy shuts. A few years ago, I was walking through King's Cross Station. That's the one in the Harry Potter movie that he goes through the wall. I was walking through King's Cross Station, trying to catch a train, probably running late for a meeting. And as I was walking, I heard the train pull up to the King's Cross underground with a slow And then me and about five other people, knowing what this meant, made a mad dash trying to catch this train. The businessman with his briefcase in full swing. The mother probably dragging her child along. And me all trying to catch this train, jumping down flights of stairs trying to catch this train. And as we approached the landing, we heard the heart-wrenching sound of the doors closing and then the slow of the train taking off. We knew we had missed it. In that case, we just waited the next five minutes for, or we waited five minutes for the next train. But for all in the valley of decision, there is no second train. There is no alternative route. There is no detour. There is one door. There is one train. There is one judgment. If you're sitting here hearing this today, you're hearing the train pull up to King's Cross platform. This is reality. None of, us, none of us in this room are probably from Judah or Judea, right? None of us are from there, right? So in this prophecy, by deduction, we are the nations. We are the people against God. We are the root of injustice in the world. We are the people against God. The Impressionists, a soul band in 1965, uh, wrote a hit song called People Get Ready. They said, people get ready. There's a train a-coming, taking passengers from coast to coast. 
And then in, later in the song, in about verse 4, it said, There ain't no room for the hopeless sinner who would hurt all mankind to save his own. That's us apart from Christ, hurting all of mankind to save our own skin. And when the day of the Lord's judgment comes, he will mockingly call us to defend ourselves. And what will we say then? I am a warrior. That's it's not going to be good enough. Apart from Christ, that's all we can say. And that's not a very good option. Joel 2.11 says, The day of the Lord will be great and very awesome. Who could endure it? And the answer is none of us can. None of us can. So what hope is there for us, the nations? Who will save us from the Lord? And the answer is the Lord will save us from the Lord. That's the message Jesus came to preach. The Lord will save us from the Lord. He came to promise hope for the hopeless sinner. He came to provide a way for us to be citizens of God, his heritage. Romans 5, 8 makes this very clear. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Amen? Mandela was prepared to die for his people, right? Mandela was prepared to die for his people, but Jesus actually did die for his people. And beyond that, he died for his enemies. Romans 5.10, for while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. This week, I was walking through Morton Meadows, a neighborhood right behind our church offices, and I came to this yard art. Do you know what yard art is? It's like an art piece in your yard, yard art. And it was this peculiar yard art. It was, it was an atomic bomb about the size of me. And coming out the top were these beautiful flowers, right? It was the weirdest thing. I don't know why they put that there. But to me, in that moment, it was a symbol of what is happening here, right? For those of us who are in Christ, we see the flowers. We see the life and justice that is provided in God's judgment. But for those of us who are apart from Christ, all we can see is the bomb, the death and destruction of God's judgment. The same source of life is the same source of final judgment and death. But church family, here is the good news. The train has landed at the king's cross. The train has not landed at God's judgment. It has not landed at God's bomb. The train has landed at the king's cross. Can I get an amen? The train has landed at the king's cross, the place where Jesus took on all judgment on himself so that we wouldn't have to go through any of it. And so for those in the room who are on the train, would you rest assured that you are secure in Christ? Right? For those on the train, rest assured that you are secure in Christ. The train has landed at King's Cross. Verse 16 makes this exceptionally exceptionally clear. It says, The Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. The train has landed at King's Cross. And for those in the room, would you hear me honestly, soberly, earnestly? Would you hear these words? For those of you in the station... The doors are closing. There will be no alternative route. There will be no detour. There is one train and there is one doorway and his name is Jesus. The the doors are closing, but they are not closed yet. But they won't stay open forever. Today, would you get on the train? Would you join the heritage? Would you... Would you experience this mercy that is freely given to you? Repent and believe that Jesus could could cover all of your sin and injustice against a holy and just God. Now, if, if God is the great justice fighter who fights not only for his people, but for his enemies, 
where is this train going? The question still remains, where is this train going? And is the destination actually better than where we are now? We've seen the settings, or the setting. We've seen the summons of God's judgment. Now let's look at at the aftermath of God's judgment. What is this all about? In Joel, we see one last time shift in verse 18, right? It says this, In that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. In that day, the famine brought on God's people will come to an end. And the mountains will drip drip with sweet Prosecco. And people who are lactose intolerant will be able to drink milk once more. And the stream beds will flow with crystal clear water, the life source of all humanity. And why is that? Because all of these good things flow from the house of the Lord. Imagine that. The people who are so used to living in famine, in poverty, who are used to living off of rations, will have food in plenty and food for enjoyment. God is making good on his promise to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And this is possible because God will be there and all of this will flow from him. God will be with his people. A few years ago, I discovered a thing called the Westminster Catechism. And maybe you guys grew up in a church that had some sort of catechesis. I didn't. But I understand if you don't, if that word's, you're a little allergic to it. There's a lot of things from my childhood that I don't necessarily like either. But um, the Westminster Catechism is essentially a set of questions and truths that you recite about humanity and God. And this was new to me. I'd never seen anything like this. I grew up in fairly like... Pentecostal churches, fairly like just evangelical. And so these sort of old traditional things were just new to me. And I was so excited to learn more about it. And the reason I love the Westminster Catechism is because the very first question is the question that all of humanity is wanting to know. It's the question that all of humanity can't stop asking. And the question is this, what is the chief end of mankind? Why are we here? Why do we have jobs Why do we go to church? Why do we wear clothes? Why do we do anything, right? What is the chief end of mankind? What is all this about? And the answer in the Westminster Catechism is simple and profound. They say this, the chief end of humankind is to glorify God and to know him forever. That's what we're here for. That's what all this judgment is about, to know God, to walk once more in the garden with our creator to know him personally, experientially, to know and glorify God forever. God is fighting for the justice of his people, but he's also fighting for them to know him. God not only wants to save us from death and destruction, but he wants to know us and for us to know him. And that day we will see God face to face and we will know him as surely as you can see the person next to you or as surely as you can see me on stage, we will see God But today, we get to know him through his spirit, through his word, and through the word became flesh, Jesus Christ. And so my question for us is this, how are we experiencing God now? If the ultimate end of mankind, the ultimate purpose of our life is to know and glorify God, how are we experiencing him now? We can read about God and we can study his word and that is good to enhance our view of God. But don't for a second think that it's the same to know about God and the same to know God. Those are two different things. 
We can know a lot about God without ever knowing God, right? It's one thing to know about God. It's one thing to know God. It's, it's like a scientist trying to explain what makes an apple tasty, right? He's got this apple in the lab and he's poking and prodding it and it's hooked up to an EKG, but he's never actually eaten an apple, right? He's never actually tasted what an apple tastes like. He knows a lot about apples, but he doesn't actually know what this apple's about, right? Christian, our life in Christ is much more than rehearsing facts about God. Our life in Christ is a truth we can taste now and we'll see then. It's sweet wine to experience. It's milk to taste. Water not only to nourish and sustain us, but to be enjoyed. God is fighting for the justice of his people, but he's also fighting for us to know him. And today, in in closing, I hope... um, uh, maybe some questions have been raised and feel free to pull one of the pastors or anyone aside and ask those questions. But please don't, don't shoot the messenger, right? Like these aren't my words, these are God's words and we're all just trying to figure it out together. But I think God makes it exceptionally clear here in Joel 3 that he loves his people. Like Nelson Mandela, he's a justice fighter for his people, willing to go to great lengths, not only for his people, but for his enemies to bring them into his family. Injustice in which we're all caught in, he wants to set right. And his judgment is inescapable and near. But the hope for the Christian is that Christ will cover our judgment, that the train has landed at King's Cross. All of this affording for us to do what we were made to do, to know God and enjoy him forever.